Hey y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 66. Great interview coming at you in this one. We get into all kinds of stuff like focusing on the why in your mixing and production, the power of learning from everyone around you, the difference between working in studio settings versus apprenticeship settings, and finally, how leaving your comfort zone might be the only way to get where you want to go. But before we get into all that, I wanted to suggest a way of thinking about taking action that is a bit different than most people's default. So we all know that building a career in music is about the long game, that there's no single thing that you'll do that will change everything and make you famous or rich. Now, despite the fact that deep down inside, we know that that is true and that we talk to others like we know that it's true, we generally don't live like we know it's true. A lot of times, and I'm guilty of this just as much as most people, a lot of times we weigh every gig every song and every tour like it's the one that's going to change everything. Like it's the magical button that we're going to press that brings us success. And so because of the gravity that we assign to some of the projects that we're involved in or the decisions we make, we can end up overanalyzing the cost of the actions we take. Here's an example. You mix or produce a record for a cool indie band. They get signed to a major label who's really excited to push their next record, and the band convinces the label that you should do the next record too. You'll probably feel that this is your best opportunity to finally get noticed by the major labels. And because of that, you'll probably focus a lot on the cost of failing or the cost of that record not doing well. In this case, the only cost of taking the action of doing that record is some form of failure or what that might do to your career. That's obvious stuff. We've all felt the pressure of a big gig. But what about the more obscure stuff? How about cold outreach to potential clients? The cost of action there, what is it? Rejection or being ignored, right? Or maybe you want to start a YouTube channel, but you're afraid of what your peers might think. Well, the cost of that act is maybe some form of embarrassment if it doesn't go well or just the fear of being judged. Well, what if you're an artist, you're done with your next single, you're ready to release it. The cost of that action is that people might not like it. So maybe you should just write one more song and then one more song, make sure that first release is perfect. We all know a creative that does this, right? That just wants to always make sure that the first thing that they ever put out in the world is the best thing that they've ever made. So basically, whenever we think of the cost of doing something, it's always something that makes us probably not want to do that thing. It's a cost. Costs are negative, right? I mean, the cost of releasing your record is never going to be that it's number one and you're the biggest artist in the world. That's not a cost. So if we're obsessed with analyzing the cost of something, because we think it's so massively important to our career, then why not think like this instead? 
Don't analyze the cost of the action. Analyze the cost of inaction. Think about those same examples from the perspective of inaction. What's the cost of inaction for reaching out to potential clients? Let's see, maybe you'll never make a great record you love, or maybe you missed an opportunity to produce an award-winning album, or maybe it's as simple as you didn't make rent. Okay, how about the cost of not starting a YouTube channel? You'll never get messages from people thanking you for sharing your knowledge, or maybe you'll never build that passive income stream that you've always wanted, or how about something as simple as you don't have a new and exciting creative outlet. And finally, that artist that keeps writing song after song trying to beat their current planned single. The cost of inaction there is huge. It's your career never starting. It's never getting feedback from what people think of your music. It's never building a fan base, never going on tour, and never quitting your job and having a music career. There's a stark distinction between the costs of inaction and the costs of action. The costs of inaction, those definitely look like a million reasons to do the thing. And the costs of action, which we should now properly define as fear, are nothing but a bunch of reasons to not do something. So what would you rather have? Reasons to scare you into taking action in your life and your career, or reasons to scare you out of taking action? I think it's a pretty easy choice. So I challenge you to flip how you relate to your actions by thinking about not what is at stake when you do something, but instead, what is at stake if you don't? Today's guest is Brooklyn-based, Grammy-nominated producer and mixer Chris Tabron. Chris's credits include a slew of names that you are more than familiar with, names such as The Strokes, Common, Robert Glasper, Battles, Diane Word, and Beyonce. He also does remix work under the moniker Madison Avenue Girls. He's produced a documentary. Somehow, while doing all this, he also managed to get a master's from NYU Tisch School of the Arts. And finally, he's recently started a YouTube channel. So... Loads to get into on this one. Welcome to the show, Chris Tabron. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. That that intro makes me feel like I'm behind on some things. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it sounds like a to do list of things that. Oh yeah, right. I got to get back on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were those were old boxes that are already checked, though. I think you're in the yeah, clear. They're, they're checked, but they also make me think either like, well, am I behind on other things, or have I have I already lived the first line of my uh, bio? <laughs> But that's just me. That's something else. I'll uh, deal with that, that with therapy. That, yeah, <laughs> that's right. not your department. So there's another podcast for that. <laughs> yeah, it's a different podcast. So I watched the latest YouTube video. I, I was uh, I was loving it. There's great tips. Oh, the one that came out today? Yeah, yeah. I oh, watched cool. it before we jumped on. Um, anybody that's like looking to improve their mixing approach should definitely check out Chris's channel. But what I love that you're doing is that it's like more philosophical. It's not like nerdy technical. I don't know if you're going to do any nerdy technical, but... I just think it's a cool approach because there's enough of that EQ point stuff out there. And so, Thanks. you know, I'm a fan. I like it. Yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely looked at the, the landscape already before I delved into this world. There are plenty of people telling you, go to vocal chain. Uh, I also noticed there's a lot of people that yell <laughs> on their audio <laughs> YouTube channel. I don't know if you know, or like they quiet yell where it's like, do this always when it comes to mixing drums. And it's like, okay, I guess that maybe implies that you know what you're talking about. But uh, so I'm learning from antithesis, but I also don't want to crowd that. There's plenty of people that are telling you what to do dogmatically. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on the philosophical thing. I, I just want to, I guess, fill a space of, of thinking about why, the why behind things, why you're doing things. Yeah. Because... Ultimately, or at least that's how I started and, and learned anyway, ultimately, I think that that's going to bear more fruit. 
Uh, I think a lot of the times when I've done presentations or I've done master classes, a lot of uh, younger creatives are they get fixed on well, what's the what's the what mic are you using or what's the thing that you're what are you doing? What thing do you have that I don't have? What plugin is it? And right. you know, it's we know that it's not that. Uh, we come to the crushing realization at some point. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I guess I'm trying to bridge that gap and also, and, and in a lot of ways, honestly, just be empowering to well, it's all up here. It's all your paradigm and the way that you look at something. Yeah, that's going to help you get results. Yeah. Well, the why is like it takes like a long time for people to focus on something like the why because it's it's kind of what makes you unique. It's like the choices that you make and why you make them are why a Chris mix is a Chris mix and a Manny mix is a Manny mix. It's like nobody nobody's following the directions once you reach that point. It's it is all about what you've lived up to that point and why you make those choices. So it's kind of you know it's the only thing people should be worried about is why they're doing something, not not yeah, what they're doing. Yeah. I think that there's a lot. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for, of course, ear training and making sure that you're you're learning how to use the equipment. But the analogy that I often come to is, yeah, you, if you want to play guitar, you have to learn scales, right, and different chord shapes and voicings, right. But you you don't. No one wants to hear a soloist play like think about scales. You want to hear the <laughs> soloist just shred. And like there are, of course theoretical underpinnings and technical underpinnings of that, but you want to kind of know something so well that you can forget it, for lack of a better way of putting it. So like, True. I look at all the gear in my room and it's great and I'm, I'm always been a nerd and like pulling things apart and modifying them and so on and so forth, but when I'm in the flow, I'm not thinking about the slew rate of this compressor. I'm thinking, oh, there's a sound in my head and I need it to come out of the speakers, otherwise I'm going to forget it and get bored and then just question my life decisions. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, anyway, I think the channel's good. I think uh, anybody listening to this show should go check it out. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I know um, we chatted the other day. We kind of pre-gamed this a little bit. And we kind of talked about having a different conversation than like the usual podcast of this is my career and blah, blah, blah. Because mm. you've done that. And I've listened to a couple of those interviews and they're really good. So I was trying to come up with a way to mix it up. So I've got, I figure let's let's do like a little... Choose your own adventure if you're down. Oh, wow. Okay, great. So we can A, we can be traditional and do like a quick rundown of your story mm -hmm. and then see where that goes. Or B, I've got two questions uh, that you can pick from that would probably be more like a mid-late interview vibe. Oh, wow. Uh, one's a little bit more of a warm-up and one's like jumping into overtime in the playoffs. So you, <laughs> so, uh, so, so you pick. I mean, you know I'm going to pick the latter. I mean, I, I mean <laughs> dealer's choice. It's your show. I just work here. But I think that, uh, you know, that the, the latter sounds more interesting. Okay. All right. Well, Do I get to phone a friend? What are the rules of this? Uh... I, guess it, I guess it depends on, on how deep you want to go. We'd, okay, we'd, let's you see. totally put something on a speaker if you need to. <laughs> but um, if we need to lead up to this in any way, we totally can. But what would you say the hardest decision you've ever made in your career was that you can think of off the top of your head? And kind of what led up to that and what changed afterwards? Wow, you're not messing around. Okay. <laughs> hey, you told out. me you wanted to mix great, it up. Great guns. The <laughs> hardest decision that I've had to make in my career and what, what was the second part? What led up to it? Yeah, what led up to it and more importantly, like what changed on the, on the backside of it? Hmm. You know, I... <laughs> The hardest part about answering this question is not combing my brain for anecdotes or things that might be interesting or stories that I can tell you. The hardest thing is 
trying to ascertain at what point I had a career. <laughs> uh, and I'm not saying that to be coy, but it's like you sort of just start doing it. Yeah. And then bills are getting paid miraculously or bills are getting tap danced around and you kind of figure out like, okay, rent I can't negotiate on, but Con Ed can wait. Right. And then you just kind of keep repeating it and then you get used to not having a real job and you're like, well, I'm never going to have a real job again. So here are my marketable skills, world. So I don't know that I uh, I can pinpoint a time where I was anointed into having a career. But to that, with that caveat, I will try to answer. Okay. You know, there's two moments. So I started out with my interest in music professionally as a DJ. Okay. On the radio and in clubs and and in an era in New York where it was a different scene than it is now, uh, but nonetheless fun. So the way that I came to understand sounds and music and what they did was more about the effect that they had on people and various crowds and rooms. And I loved the ability to just sort of scan the room and be like, I'm going to play that person's favorite record who I don't even know. Or how do I get everyone to like hit the floor right now? Or how do I get everyone to take a breather and go to the bar and take a, take a little break? So there came a point where you know, you you hit a certain echelon as a DJ and you go to a fork in the road and you're either going to be a DJ that's going to just tour all the time or I think at the time uh, turntablism was all in the vogue or go down that or or back a artist, like a hip-hop artist or something like that, or right. you're going to be a producer of some sort. I went the other way. And so I looked at the careers of people that I, you know, people like DJ Premier, uh, Steinsky, Double D and Steinsky, like the way that they were able to use their ability to take what would previously be considered divergent sounds and have them all make sense, whether they're samples or whether they're coaching an artist into making a record. That was really interesting to me. So I think really it comes down to me deciding to make a record of which I knew nothing about at the time. I was... 20 or 19. Is a record of your own? A record of my own, yeah. And I feel very fortunate that I knew nothing about it. If I had, if someone had laid out to me <laughs> everything involved, um, it, it tracks the, the five stages of grief pretty well, actually. <laughs> uh, I, I would not be sitting here talking to you today. I probably would do something else. Um, that said, it was a great learning experience, but I had to double down in a way and I had to turn down some otherwise fairly lucrative DJing gigs to buy some equipment. I bought an MPC 2000XL that I still have. Nice. And I think that was the first decision where I was kind of exploring, okay, how do I make a thing that maybe I don't understand the, I can't quantify its components, but I know what it looks like when it's right by virtue of the experiences that I've had in clubs and bars DJing and seeing what music can do to people and bring people together and make people dance, make people feel happy in, in the sort of social arenas. Yeah. So that was, um, that was one moment. And I think um, second one was probably when I moved to LA. Uh, that, was, that was sort of, in a lot of ways, me getting my my master's degree in mixing, uh, working for Tony Maserati, that was 2010 or nine. I think it was ten, and that was a that was a big deal too because I had just I was working a lot in the city. I was working a lot in New York, 
producing indie bands, doing half of the sessions on tape, on analog tape, two-inch, DJing every now and then, doing uh, music supervisor stuff for Fashion Week. Like In terms of just a financial benchmark, there was no real reason right. for me to move. And yet there was something that pulled me in terms of, like I'd known Tony for years before and I'd met him around the time that I started making my first record, but I'd never worked for him in any official capacity. And of course, like just after I was given this other opportunity at a different studio, Tony's like, hey man, I'm starting a mixed team in LA. You want to come work for me? And so I had to make that decision. LA, you know, not, not my favorite city <laughs> to live. Uh, I like it a lot better now than I did then. But uh, it, was a, it was a decision that I knew there'd be a lot of things. I guess I had to, again, double down on, I'm in this comfortable place. Yeah. But what do I want in five years, in 10 years? And can I get there from here? And I didn't think I could get there from that comfortable place. Yeah, that's cool. That's a, that's a, a really awesome point of view. I, I've, I've talked about it on the show before, like, comfortable is like really great and there's like a time and place for comfortable like i'm comfortable with my situation right now i just had a baby like now's probably a good time mm-hmm. to be comfortable and not get crazy right yeah but but people forget like you can stay in that zone for too long and then there's just time passes and you kind of just forget what your drive was and you're kind of cool with wherever you're going i'm just on this road going somewhere i didn't want to go anymore <laughs> and then when you get there you're like Shit, mm-hmm. I missed my turn. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, that's, uh, that's awesome. How long were you in L.A.? Just uh, a little over two years, two and a half years maybe. Okay. I think, I mean, I'd been back and forth for work, but, but living there properly, yeah, I was living in Echo Park and working in uh, North Hollywood for about two, two and change. Okay. You know, I actually, um, I had a couple questions about, since you brought Tony up, your time working with Tony. One being... Were there any big takeaways that were like big aha moments working with somebody like that or specifically him? Things that you still think about every day that, you know, um, a kid might, might appreciate? You know, it's interesting. I, there's, he's obviously the best of the best when it comes to being a mixer. I think when I first met him, I knew less about mixing than probably anyone else that would be in his orbit. And for whatever reason, he allowed me to stay around. This is before I moved moved to LA to work with him. This is in New York when he was at Chungking or Sony and I would just kind of be the kid he'd allow to hang out uh, and I'd like be able to work every now and then in the studio and barter for time where I would just like miraculously a CDR of my band's demo would make it onto the desk and he'd listen to it and give me notes. It's great. It's invaluable. Um, I wonder how that got there. I do. Yeah. I wonder who put this here. I do remember a moment at Chungking understanding the... Maybe a bullseye on my back is a little bit dramatic, but I'm going to stick with the metaphor. I do remember being naive to the social uh, politics of a recording, a commercial recording studio. Because again, I didn't know anything. I've never been to recording school. I've never taken a music lesson on anything, uh, for better or for worse. And here I am at Chungking Studio Blue or Green working on a console. And... I knew when when the interns that were at the front desk were a little salty about me borrowing a manual so I could go to Kinko's and copy it. This is for your younger <laughs> listeners. There used to be this thing called paper that we'd have to <laughs> mechanically <laughs> reproduce things on. It was just after the uh, cuneiform <laughs> tablets. <laughs> um, so I, I knew 
I think me feeling like I never went to audio school, I felt always behind the eight ball. So I was like, I better read the manual to this thing that Tony's always using so that I know how to use it. Yeah. So I, I, I detected them being a little salty about it and I realized like, oh wow, like they're audio school grads. Uh, they're working for free ostensibly and there's four of them in the office staring at a phone. And I am in the room. And also, I don't work for the studio. I work for him. So I'm kind of asking them to do things for me. Oh, yeah. And I was naive to that. And then I finally realized, like, oh, right. Like, and then I remember a kid came in the room once, one of the saltier interns, and this felt really great, sitting out there all day long, never pulled a manual off the shelves, obviously. And he's talking to Tony. I think he'd, he'd done a lunch order and was bringing the lunch order in. And he leans against the Melbourne, the Neve Melbourne, uh, which is a 12-channel little sidecar console that Tony's had for years. And he le- leans on it. <laughs> and at first, Tony looks because like his butt cheek is about to bump one of the faders that's been calibrated, but then he lets it go. And then he, he asked Tony, he's like, hey, um, does this room have a Neve in it, Tony? Oh, and I no. was just like, oh, oh, no. He's actually, he's literally <laughs> sitting on it. No Neve, just a chair. Just a chair. <laughs> and, I, and then I was like, you know what? I might be okay. Because I think there's something more to this than having gone to audio school. So I think, you know, but moments like that made me really want to put the pedal to the metal and be like, okay, cool. Not only am I going to know how to do this, I'm going to learn how to do the all the SMPTE stuff and, and whatever to get the SSL to work with Pro Tools automation. Oh, yeah. So that was earlier on. And then, you know, Tony was upstate and I would go up every now and then in a system on a record. But I was sort of, you know, what was really cool about the formative years was he was more of like, a guy I knew who I could bounce ideas off of. He'd kick me work every now and then to like tune something or do whatever. But he was upstate mainly and I was in the city. So I was still doing the indie bands thing. The, you know, I think the nicest mic I had at the time was a 414. Nice. And I think I had a, I think I saved up for a Brent Averill clone of a 1073. It was like, that was like the, the staples that I had. Everything else was just like all, you know, gray market gear. <laughs> but I would have access to these amazing studios like Studio One at Hit Factory or Sony or Chungking, and I could listen to things in there and also just hear like, okay, here's when you spare no expense what things sound like. Yeah. How do I get that to work at my crappy little studio in Bushwick or in Greenpoint? So I was uh, exposed to a lot of different sounds, a lot of different sonic palettes. And it's not a dissimilar way that I was when I was DJing, but this is now I'm kind of seeing the DNA of sound. Right. And then when I fast forward... 10-ish years later working for Tony in LA, you know, it was definitely hard. It was, it was a lot of crazy long days and it was, it was working in, in a way that I hadn't worked before. It was, it was working, you know, a lot of it was working within his system. Right. And the way that he needed things to be and set up. And that, that was fine. That wasn't super hard to, to adjust to, but I think also my aspirations were beyond being a mixer who mixes four songs a day. Right. So it was a thing that I immediately, and this is honestly, I had to course correct about, let's say two to three weeks after moving there. Okay, this is not what I think it's going to be. This was not even what I want it to be, but how do I make it what I need it to be? Ooh, love that. And that's the most sincere and honest answer. And I still talk to Tony to this day and, and we're still friends. But I, I think that, yeah, a lot of that time was very little of what I wanted it to be, but every bit what I needed it to be. 
Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective. I'm thinking about my own career. There's like so many times where you took a job thinking it was going to be one thing and it's totally different. But then, the, you, yeah, you, you're there, you're doing it. You can't quit on day three. You got to find like, what, well, if this isn't what it is, what am I supposed to get out of this? Maybe it's, I'm going to learn this thing or I'm going to meet these 10 people over the next year and then I don't have to be here anymore or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's a cool course, correct. I think that's... Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes you can, you can learn from people by them teaching you or you can learn from people by the antithesis of things, yeah. you know? Uh, it's, it's a mixed bag. You know, a lot, of, a lot of my habits that I have now are from people that have taken me under their wing, like Tony and others. Uh, and a lot of the habits that I have are from me not wanting to do things a certain way. Because right. I, I've learned that sort of system and that way of working. Uh, right. And I think that that's to be expected. I think that that's the same thing with people that I mentor, assistants that I have. You know, I think it's a metric of success if you eventually outgrow the gig, at least for me, because I don't, I don't believe in in teaching people to be good assistants. I believe in teaching them to be good engineers. So yeah. if you're doing the job right and I'm doing the job right, your time should mature at a certain point and you've outgrown it. And now you're going to go do things your way and you take the things that you learn from me a la carte and whatever works, works. And that's how, that's how I think you build up a pedigree of people, you know, like, like Tony, my work with Tony will always be a part of my pedigree. My work with producer mixer, Alex Newport will always be a part of my pedigree and the people that they learned from same thing. I I like that. Otherwise we're just kind of making a bunch of clones. And like you're saying before, then (laughs) what's the, what's the point of having a a whole (laughs) lineage of people that do everything the same way? Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Yeah. Well, you know, while you were talking about that, I think about, like, the traditional studio world. And, and you know, it's like you train a great assistant, you know, because that's the world I came up through. You train a great runner to be a great assistant, and then, you know, they get picked up by an engineer or producer and they move on there, they do their own thing. And that doesn't happen as much now. And, you know, as it, as it did, like when I arrived in LA, that was kind of the path and that path doesn't seem to exist in the same way. Now I feel like studios want to create amazing assistants and give them like just enough carrot on the stick so that they never leave. And they have these, um, they, they have people that they know will crush it for every client but you don't get that like that thing like i came up through capital every time i have a gig and they're like what studio you want to go to the first choice is capital cuz that's what is familiar to me when they say we can't afford mm-hmm. that or we aren't in los angeles or whatever then we go somewhere else but i feel like people need to get back to like kind of pushing people to outgrow the job like you're saying i think that's just the right thing to do in this yeah in this industry cuz you just have this staleness or re if not outgrow the job reimagine the job yeah. You know, I have I have conversations with assistants every six months or so about like what's working, what's not working, where do you want to go? That's cool. And those weren't conversations that I was afforded, but again, learning through antithesis, it would have been nice. Yeah. And it's also like I asked that knowing that if you're 23 or 25 or 26 years old, 
24-2, that <laughs> you probably don't know the answer. Right. But the exercise of being asked it is important. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons uh, that I pick studios that I work at when I'm not working out of my home studio is the staffing. I think about the staff at the studios. Mm-hmm. Of course, I want the room to sound good and I want it to have a certain facility or if I need a desk, I need a desk, whatever. But specifically when I'm in LA, I like Capital as well. I like the staff at Capital. They're amazing. They're amazing. Uh, I think of uh, same thing with Village or yeah. uh, Record Plant. You know, I usually am just mixing it in Record Plant. I don't need much. Um, Henson's always a great experience. Exactly. I th- but it's, I say this, I've said this a lot before, you know, without the people, it's just a room with speakers. Studios are made of people. Yeah. And, and it's not just like, oh, is the person going to get the lunch order right? It's like, are they going to understand at a basic level communication? How are the smaller things that I'm not even going to notice just come together? And also, I like letting people hang out in the room and learn. Because that's how I was allowed to hang out in the room by some miracle and learn. So I like to pay that forward. But it, to me, it's about staffing. And I think if you're investing in staff that way, and, and I'm sympathetic to studios because I'm sure that they're on the ropes financially. It's hard. It's hard to sell time these days. Yeah. But I think if you're investing in staffing, you can also be investing in people to be reinventing things, to take ownership of studios, to take ownership of places that they work in and want to make them better. Yeah. I think it's a gold mine. If you have a 20-something-year-old working for you in a studio that's 60 years old, yes, maybe they don't know how to set up the Bloomline array perfectly yet. Right. But they know how 20-year-olds are making records. And it's going to be 20-year-olds that are going to be signed to labels that are going to be able to afford capital. Yeah. So I think that there has to be a give and take. I I agree. I agree completely. Well, kind of related to that, something I wanted to ask you because I know... Mm. You're mostly self-taught, but you were on staff at a, a studio for a while, Future Shock Studios. Yeah, that was Alex Newport's studio. Yes, okay. And then you worked for Tony. And then I also ran, I was chief engineer of Red Bull Studios for seven years. Oh, okay. In New York. So, yeah. in your opinion, do you think, like, if I'm, or if you're a, a young wannabe engineer, producer, mixer, is the one-on-one mentoring approach and finding, like, somebody you can work closely with better than the studio approach? I think it depends on what you want to do. Mm. And, it, and again, it's hard to know exactly what you want to do when you're 20-something years old. Um, maybe start narrowing down by uh, antithesis what you don't want to do. If you want to be a mastering person, you probably need to just work with a mastering person. I think all people, um, an assistant that I'm training now, wants to be a mixer. I think you should spend a lot of time, even if you want to be a mixer, spend a lot of time in recording studios. Because you're getting exposed to, of course, myriad different types of sounds and timbres and and a lot of tricks to get different types of sounds and to be yep. quick because people time is money and people are waiting and if they want the drums to sound dirty, you have to give them five different options immediately and that's only going to help in mixing. But I think that there's also a social aspect that you pick up when you're in a studio and on a Tuesday you're doing a jazz session, on Wednesday it's a jingle, on Thursday it's a rock band. You're getting different ideas of what that thing is that feels magical, that makes people be like, okay, that one was take four, that's the one. Okay, let's comp the vocal into that one and let's send this off to be mixed. So if you're going to be a mixer, why did they pick this version of these takes of this song? And why is this important? And what's magic in here? And how do I make that magic the best version of itself? 
I think the best way to understand that is to spend a lot of time in studios. They don't have to be traditional big commercial studios. If you can get a gig at, at Capitol, that's great. But places where you're getting exposed to a lot of different types of music, a lot of different ways of entering the world, a lot of different people, I think that's only going to help you regardless mm-hmm. of what you want to do. Yeah. And I think if you can, if you're lucky enough, try and supplement that with working with someone on a one-on-one basis because they might maybe not be able to pay you as well, but they'll be able to pay you or compensate you in teaching you a bit more because they'll maybe have more time one-on-one. For me, it was, you know, working for Alex at Future Shock was great because he's a great engineer and mixer himself and he'd never had anyone engineer for him before. So when he had me set up stuff, it, it, it was, I wasn't going to impress him easily. <laughs> um, by setting up drum sound. Like he could, right. it was a thing that he could do it on his own if he wanted to. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot. And, and, and also like a lot of things like that was not a Electric Lady or Abbey Road type studio, but we made it sound good. We yeah. made it work. And it was like, yeah, the, the drums go here. They sound great here. And that was one of the places that I, I, I was fortunate enough to be at when I would be swinging back and forth between these huge budget studios to be like, oh, like, you can get things to sound pretty good in a smaller room if you just know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say, yeah, I mean, the, the, the briefer answer is, is I think if you can get as much experience understanding what it is that makes people tick about music and about certain sounds in a studio where there's a lot of different types of artists coming through, that's probably going to help you no matter what path you want to go down. Even if it is mastering, and, and usually that's the thing where people don't really attend that much. Yeah. There's still something that people are responding to that I think is pretty universal with music, and I think it's hard to, to teach that. You have to kind of experience that in the room. Yeah, I agree. I think about, like, watching, you know, amazing bands do, do a jazz record. Like, I, you know, I went to music school, but I was never a jazz fan. But, like, watching the players that would come through, you're just like, oh, shit, wow, that was mm-hmm. amazing. That was the first take. And it's totally acceptable to use that. And I understand why. (laughs) Because I was taking this coffee order and I was like, shit, that was amazing. And if you're lucky enough to be the engineer, you're like, they're making me look like a genius. Right. (laughs) I just put up mics kind of not too close and I hit record. And I just sit here and I let them do that. Like every time I work with Glasper, it's the same. It's like, and he always has heavy hitters in the room. But uh, I I mean, every time someone's like, wow, man, it sounds great. You know, honestly, it's pretty hard to mess this gig up, man. I'm not gonna lie. (laughs) <laughs> when you get to those, I can't remember, who was it? Uh, uh, Dean Parks, uh, guitarist. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever worked with Dean. Mm-mm. But I, I, I recorded him once. Usually I was like the, the assistant and we were doing nylon string. He, and he was trying different nylons out. And I was putting, putting my mic on the, on the guitar and, and he just looked at me and he was like, over here on this one. <laughs> and I'm like, of course, if that's where you want it, that's where I'll put it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, you you know your craft. You're amazing. You tell me where to put it. I'll, it's all good. All good. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Over here. <laughs> <laughs> this guitar is better over here. This guitar is, well, I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, that's his sound. He, know, he knows where, yeah, where it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking about hard tangent here. You, you mm. said you were doing a lot of work in New York, you know, when you decided to come to LA, doing a lot of indie bands, doing other music supervision stuff. But do you have any advice for people that are just out there like looking to get gigs with bands? Like where were you getting all your projects from? Were you going to shows, meeting people, relationships, word of mouth? Like what do you think made people gravitate towards you then? You know, that's the thing that I think actually Jamie asked me this on on his podcast or it came up in terms of just mistakes I've made. That's one thing 
that I think I underestimated was the social aspect of having to just go to shows and be out there and be a good hang to get a lot of gigs. I think I was had a little bit of Phantom of the Opera syndrome where I was like, I'm just going to be a studio rat and like, they will come, you know, I'm going to just right, make the right. amazing sounds. Like, wait till they get a load of this telephone that I rewired to an XLR and I'm putting it under the drum kit. You know, like, nobody cares. <laughs> come to my show, man. Are you okay to hang out? Do you shower occasionally? So I think that that's incredibly important to to meet bands. And and I think it's in, it helps also to just maintain being a fan of music. Uh, you don't always have to go to a band's show with the agenda of like, are they going to let me produce their record? Just be a fan of music. Particularly in New York, I think the New York music scene gets undersold that there's that everyone left and went to LA, and that's not true. There's there's a lot of heads here. We're doing okay. Thank you very much. Y'all can stay there. <laughs> you guys stay there. Okay. We're okay. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think it runs in concentric circles, you know. And if you're any good at what you do, you're kind of one r- removal, one Kevin Bacon removal away from knowing somebody else, right? So just right. go to shows. But also, I I used to go to studios when I wasn't even working, and other friends of mine that were record, I would just hang out to see how someone else did something. And I'd be like, oh, I'll go run and get lunch, you know, whatever. That's cool. It's, I think, the closer you can kind of tap into the community nature of how music is made, that's going to get you work. And it was a thing that early on, I think I underestimated. And I would see people uh, that I'm certainly not going to name, but so you see people that I'm like, they can't be doper than me, right? Uh, (laughs) Because I was definitely cocky. But uh, they were, let's say, as good as me, getting more work. And right. a lot of it was that they understood that aspect that I didn't get, that they were like, they were going to shows more or they were at this party or whatever. And I think part of it is that. I think it's also, of course, the the choices that you make in your discography, that's going to be your calling card. I think it's also to the degree that you can work on music that you would listen to. Mm-hmm. That's going to keep the right people around too. Yeah. But I, I was fortunate that like I sort of saved enough money from DJing and pilfered it away. And I think I was paying four fifty a month in rent, which is crazy. In uh, it New was York an illegal City? Apartment. In New yeah, York? Yeah, and deep in Brooklyn, uh, in an illegal apartment, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, this, this is fine. But uh, I, was, I was attached to nothing. You know, I, I could live on rice and beans. I didn't have to make any life decisions that would affect anybody else but me. Right. So I could grind. And I was like, I'm going to work six days a week if they'll have me. And any student, and, and, and like, this is the deal, here's this, blah, blah, and I was just, it was great. Yeah. So I think that, you know, for younger, first of all, if you're an aspiring producer, uh, I'll tell you right now, you're already a producer. Take aspiring out of the name to start producing. That's good. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no membership cards, so just start producing, <laughs> especially with the way technology works. Just go for it. Yeah. Particularly with engineers. And it's, I mean, similarly too, like, I think just start. You're going to probably have to work for cheap or free. See if you can work out some sort of compensation trade-off, maybe, or a barter, or like you work on this person's record and then they sing on one of your beats for you or something. You know, be creative. But I think find with anything, I think that's in the creative realms. Find your people, and they're going to find you. You know, they they're kind of kind of respond to the energy that you put out. And that's what once I realized that, once I cracked the code, then I was like, oh, I think I can quit my job uh, and just keep doing this. <laughs> and here I am, and here and here we are. <laughs> that's great. I, I that's actually really amazing. So we didn't really do anything about your your past. Uh, I'm kind of making an assumption just from what I've read about you or or what I've listened to 
you're a multi-instrumentalist? Yeah, I the the tagline I say is I'm really good at not being great at any one instrument. <laughs> uh, I think my job is to keep a beginner's mind on most. I can I can plunk around on most things. Okay, nice. I I wouldn't put a violin in my hands. And and to that end, when I end up playing things on things that I'm producing, I'm wildly self-conscious and probably overly critical. I'm like, oh, wait, you're keeping those drums? I thought we were going to get someone to, uh, okay, uh, I guess that's fine. Um, and I remember actually for this band Lower Dance that I really enjoyed working with, we were just bouncing stems back and forth. And I, I thought I was still auditioning for the gig and they just kept sending me stems of different songs. And I was not in this studio, I was in a different studio. And I had just a kick hat snare kit that I'd put in front of the lounge couch. And I think I had a 47 mono overhead or maybe, maybe it was 414, I don't even know. And so I'm just playing to get the vibe yeah. with full on, like there's a drummer in the band. <laughs> yeah. And they ended up keeping a lot of that stuff. And, yeah. and then the drummer would replay some of the things and it was, it was sort of cool, but I was so self-conscious. Like my job, like I guess my threshold for success if I've ever played anything on a record is that it's ignored. But I can, like I don't want anyone to be like, who played drums on this? I want people to be like, there are drums. Okay, let's go to the vocals. <laughs> Next. So, yeah, I think I, I can, commu- I, I mean, a less sort of flippant answer to your thoughtful question would be I, I can communicate on, on most instruments. My favorite uh, role to play, though, is to sit at an instrument next to a person that is a virtuoso at it and be like, hey, can you do something kind of like this that, but you know, that doesn't suck? And they were like, yes, I know exactly what you mean. Please step aside. Yeah. And then we're yeah. there. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of great producers that will, that kind of really kind of give you the part, even though they can play it there at the piano. And they're like, I really like this melody. Mm-hmm. Can you play this melody? And it's just like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, every, every person, it, they put their self into their instrument, you know? Yeah. It's like, here's an idea. Now you do you on that idea. Yeah, I'll never be the producer that's like better at everyone in the band's instrument. And I have no, you know, luckily I have no agenda or aspirations to be that. Um, but uh, I like, again, just having idea. I, I'm the person that's, all, I have a guitar in my hands. So I'm like, yeah, uh, what is that? And then someone who actually plays guitar will be like, yeah, that's a minor nine. Great, love it. What's just minor nine, this one up here. And you there, <laughs> no crashes until the ver- to the chorus, okay? Okay, three, four, let's go. It helps me keep a beginner's mind. And I think I, what I'm better at doing as a producer is to get good performances out of people and also kind of put the jigsaw puzzle pieces together. Right. So, yeah. Uh, speaking, since you, you kind of mentioned production, so the other question that I had prepared for the opening... Is this our Choose Our Own Adventure? Yeah, the Choose Your Own Adventure. Okay. The other one was, how do you define producer for yourself, especially in like 2022? Like being mm. the producer, what does that mean to you in, in uh, 2022? In terms of like credit card debt, <laughs> <laughs> you want a number? Uh, no. uh, it, it, you know, the the only satisfactory definition that I've come to is a producer just takes an idea and makes it real. Mm. Because sometimes I'm producing things and I'm playing all the instruments and doing. I'm sitting in front of a computer, computer and making an arrangement and a production, and someone's singing it, or I'm singing a melody and then they're singing on top of it, and that's that. Sometimes. Sometimes I've produced bands and and all I've done is tell them, yeah, it's done. Like maybe let's do another take, but this is great. And like the bridge doesn't have to be as floaty as you made it. But I think that the great thing about a producer is it's seeing something for what it can be, not just what it is. And I think that that's job one. 
Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to be open to a lot of different ideas. You have to be open to a lot of different ways of trying things. And you also have to have a good gut reaction when we've gone a bridge too far and and we're okay. So I think a lot of it is corralling people and getting people to feel comfortable and, and give the best versions of themselves. You know, I've said that a few times, but I think that that's really what it's about for me. You know, I, I think, yes, I'm, because I never went to engineering school, all of my engineering abilities and and predilections are towards the end result because I had to engineer as a means to an end to be a producer. Right. So I'm always hearing the sound that I want. There's other engineers that I work with that are recordists that are better recordists than me that want that love just sitting there and moving the mic an inch, going in the control room. No, that's not it. Moving in another. I'm like, you know, I got a pull tech right here, baby. I can add some top end. That's no problem. <laughs> and I like pairing myself with like a thoroughbred engineer who wants to do that because yeah. they're going to get an amazing sound for me. And anything that I say, I'm like, yeah, I just want, you know, let's just get, give me a little bit more of a smoother top end on the amp. They're going to know exactly what I mean, and that's great. Yeah. And it keeps me in a creative space. It keeps me from having to think in terms of technical things. Yeah. But I think to that end, when I, when I have to engineer things, I'm, I'm engineering like a producer. It, this, is, this is the drum sound, so raise your hand if you don't like it, because uh, we're recording it exactly the way it's going to be. <laughs> but I think that that's at least my flavor of production, is I'm taking an idea, and I'm making it come out of the speakers. I'm making it a real thing. Yeah. And that means... 15 different things, sometimes even a course of, over the course of the same record. Yeah, yeah. Well, en- engineering like a producer, uh, and I think you did like an article or something called like producing like a mixer or mixing like a producer or something like that. Sounds like something I'd do. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, I think that's, that's an approach that I think a lot of people, you know, when you're early in your production career, you're like, okay, what's the chorus need? It needs a lift. Okay, let's put a pad in it. Okay, it needs to get bigger. Let's put another pad in it. Okay, now let's put a third Juno pad in it. And you're like, all right, so now you've got like three pads doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you, I guess I'm talking about producing like a mixer because if you start, if you understand mixing and you understand production, then you can start to choose what something sonically sounds like because of the landscape it's taking. Like you're talking about like, mm-hmm. this is the drum sound that's going to work for this. You guys are cool with this, right? It's not like, let's record the perfect drum sound that we can all talk about how perfect it is and then make it trashy later. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just make the trashy thing now, you know, because it's going to affect every decision that goes down the line. Yeah, yeah. And you don't need 45 guitar parts if you just need two different tones. Just use two guitar parts, not 45, you know? Yeah, I mean, every, every good production is a good arrangement. Exactly. And every good mix is a good production, right? So yeah, I think that... Yes, let's add another Juno part. Let's add another Juno part. I think the thing that a lot of people miss that just happens naturally when it's more than one human making music is, okay, well, I'm playing the same part over and over and over, but it's sounding smaller because I haven't varied my inversions at all, right? Mm -hmm. So like the low mids are getting gummed up there. And like just naturally, if there was another person, they'd be like, oh, I'll just do a first inversion here because I don't need to have the G and the bass every time. Or like, is there going to be a bass on this track? Then we probably don't need. So I think that that's production too. It's it's sort of again seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, and you know it it comes to mind a specific example. Uh, Battles, this band Battles that I I produced their most recent record. The way that we had to do that was pretty daunting, and and I loved the challenge of it because they were down to two members, uh, Ian and John. And John uh, is probably I don't know that I'd say this to him in person, but it's, he's probably my favorite drummer that hits as hard as he hits because I don't like hard hitting drummers at all. Uh, it it usually 
the sound is choked. It's hard to get it's hard to get consistency in any nuance. Yeah. But John makes it work and he plays this huge freaking Tama kit that's amazing. And and I think he also liked that I was a bit of a drum nerd and I had brought a bunch of snares and he had a bunch of snares and I would tune the kit and all that stuff. Yeah. But Ian would give me some stems of things that would function more or less as a click for John. But they weren't playing in the room together. I had to imagine every single time when we were evaluating a drum take from John what the bigger picture was going to be like. Mm, yeah. And I had to, with the engineer, um, Nate Auden, great engineer, I had to, we, we built three separate drum kits uh, for John. So his Talma kit, his huge, like moving a lot of air in the room, just the signature battle sound. Yeah. And then a medium sized kit, which is not dissimilar from this downbeat that I have over here, the 68 downbeat. So a, a 20, 20 size kick drum, 2016. And then what I call the uh, the gorilla in the tight blazer kit that was just like in a dead room, just kick hat snare. Nice. And John is also a large dude. So when he's like wailing on a kit, I still have, I, I, he signed a, a snare head for me. I think it was after two takes. It was a, it's a weather king. He just almost punched through the thing. And he also plays tree trunks, basically. I, I don't know oh, what man. gauge they are, but he plays huge stick. But that's again like in, in, did I play anything on that record? Maybe I played a little blip or bloop here or there, but basically the production of that is how is this all going to work in the end product? And yeah. how do I set this up so that like within the same song we're going to have three different drum sounds that are going to go off each other because I don't want it to sound like Battles Live at Red Rocks where it's the same drum sound the whole album. So that's kind of taking an idea and making it a real thing, but also with a band that has a lineage of having done many, like they know what their sound is, right? So I'm not right. telling them their sound. I'm maybe coaching some performances, but it's like, okay, here's the brainchild of what this concept's going to be and how do we see that through? Yeah, that's great. So uh, so you're a drum nerd then, huh? I'm a drum nerd. I mean, it's it's funny. <laughs> a few assistants have pointed this out to me. They're like, man, you really just don't care about anything but drums and vocals, huh? I'm like, I don't know why that is, but... You could have a whole song which is drums and vocals. I mean, if you're going to pick two, if you're only allowed to pick two, those are probably the top two. One's for your ass and one's for your heart. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you you go deep on tuning. I, I'm completely incapable of tuning, but... Um, really? Yeah, you know, don't, people, ta don't tell anybody. Why is that... Uh, <laughs> secrets out. Why is... Can, tell me why. Why is it... Daunting? So many people find drum tuning daunting. And I'm like, it's easier than tuning a guitar. You know, I just... I don't find myself doing it as often. I spent... Like for me, vocals is always the thing. I've done so many mm -hmm. pop vocal sessions, like I can't even like, yeah, I can't even count them anymore. Anymore, right? So for me, it's always like we have to make this vocal needs to be perfect. We need to swap the compressors, whatever. When it comes to drums, got all my mics, you know, drum sounds, love it. When it comes to tuning, I know when it's off. I just I haven't been there with people tuning drums enough for me to go in there and fix it. Mm -hmm. I can be like, hey, there's a ring. Can we try to make this a little deader? Can we try to bring that yeah. up? I just, I have not been in a situation where I can practice and, and do it myself. But Yeah, I'm definitely a drum nerd. Um, I enjoy, I just love drums in general. I think when I was, so when I was working in all these other little studios in New York, like you get there so early when the drum tech would show up. Yeah. I, I've always been the type of person that like, I see some, a, a person as a body of knowledge. And yes, they might be, may have what you'd call a socially taxing personality, but like this drum tech, I'm not going to get dumber talking to him. So I would just talk to him and I would, I would come in with a coffee and 
just watch him do his thing. Like, hey, man, can I, can I ask you a question when, it, when it's okay? Like, you know, let me know when it's a good time. And like, most people ignore the drum tech or the, or the, the console tech or the yeah. drum, guitar tech that's coming in. I would just pepper them with questions. As long as they would let me go, I would, I would ask them a bunch of questions. And so a lot of times when there couldn't be a drum tech, I would just get there early and I would at least make sure that the, I'm not tuning the drums to a, a pitch. Um, except for Omar Hakim, he would do that. Um, but I'm making sure it sounds like music when I sit at the kit. Yeah. I don't want it to, because I hate it. Again, this is a thing we're like learning from antithesis. I would hate when I would show up to a session and you guys knew we were recording drums today and like you're just building the kit when I'm getting here. And then it just sounds, this head is completely, we got to change it. Like now, now the artist is there. Now I'm stressed. Like just why does it take three hours to get drum sounds? That, that always boggled the mind. I remember. That was a moment too where I was in a pro studio. And I was like, "Is maybe they teach you this in audio school, like why it takes that long to get drum sounds. But I'm sorry. If it takes you an hour and a half to get drum sounds, someone's fucking up. Like they're drums. You should have thought about it. You should have heard the demos. You should know what the timbre, what the, what the, at least the ballpark is and know that like, no, it's not going to be this cocktail kit or not going to be the piccolo snare. Yeah. And also you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Give me a 20-inch kit and a superphonic snare and we're good. Yeah, yeah. So I like, but I liked at least, and it's also, and you probably know this when you come into sessions too, sometimes when you're working with someone you've never worked with before, you have to immediately communicate to them, sometimes in nonverbal ways, that you're not a fucking idiot. Mm, yeah. And the way to communicate to the drummer that you're not a fucking idiot is the kit's set up, and it sounds like music when you play it. He or she may retune the kit whichever way they want it, but at least... You thought, and the drum thrones at the decent height, and it's just like, oh, there's a headphone box. Someone thought of me. They're not just, it's not a pile of hardware <laughs> in the corner. Me. Yeah, and they're like, totally. this guy might be a fucking idiot. Same thing with guitar. Make sure all the guitars in the room are tuned to standard tuning. Yeah. They might do open C later, but at least someone thought to do that, you know? And I think that that's, it comes from those habits as well. But I would definitely be that kid early on in the studio, just like trying to glom knowledge from anyone that would have me. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about mistakes earlier. And one of the mistakes that I personally made is mm. I was so good at being that invisible studio assistant runner mm -hmm. that I didn't tap the knowledge. Like I didn't tap enough people for knowledge because I was so trained to shut up, sit down, follow directions yeah. that I felt like I wasn't allowed to go outside that box. That's one of the things I always try to encourage people on this show. Like just you know, it's going to be fine. Just learn whatever you can. Don't don't be invisible. Be invisible in the way that you're supposed to be invisible. Don't be invisible to a detriment to yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah, yeah I think it, it also just probably, Travis, comes from me, again, having that chip on my shoulder where like, oh, these other kids went to like Full Sail or Berkeley or whatever, and like I didn't go to any school. Yeah. And I better just like, you know, and also just kind of feeling like an interloper kind of in general. So just being like, I don't know, like they're all going to go smoke weed in the back alley. I'm going to talk to the drum tech and maybe the next session they can't afford a drum tech, but they're going to hire me to engineer. Yeah. But I think I'm, I'm still the same now. Like I, I, I had an issue with a, a piece of crane song gear and I was talking to Dave Hill on the phone the other day. And again, the guy's a genius, but like most geniuses, he's a little bit out there. Yeah. <laughs> but I like talking to him and, and my pendulum compressor, Greg Colter, like I love just like shooting the shit with these guys on the phone because when they're gone, they're gone. And that body of knowledge is is gone with them. Yeah. And as I like, I'm not going to get dumber talking to Dave Hill about conversion. No. And I'm not going to call him 
unless I have the extra 20 minutes to spare in the first place. But if I do, if he's going to sit there and talk to me, I'm going to learn something. That's cool. That's, see, that's a great attitude. Everybody should go back 30 seconds and listen to that. Everyone call Dave Hill. Yeah. <laughs> His number Everybody is. Everybody call Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. So I've got one more question and then yeah. two more questions that I always close with. I know we're sure. close on time. Are you good for another I'm like good. 10? Yeah, yeah, Okay. My career's over. <laughs> This is, the last, this is the last thing I'm doing. <laughs> Miking up this is the last thing I'm ever going to mic up ever. Well, I want you to know it sounds great. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm in on a high note. Um, so one of the things I've been trying to do this season on the show is to kind of like talk about credits a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I've kind, I'm, nor, I'm not going to ask you the normal question I ask about credits because uh, I, I feel like you might have a different, you, an interesting opinion if I ask a different question. Okay. I feel like a lot of people, they think that one credit will change your life or <laughs> just change your career. I don't know if you agree. You have a Beyonce credit. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that changed your career or do you feel like you need to take advantage of those moments when they come? I have a few Beyonce credits. And, um, you know, the hardest thing with that was just the stacks of money getting delivered to my address. They kept delivering to the wrong place. So I still haven't gotten them, but I'm sure they're there. I have to talk to UPS when I get off with you, actually. You know, I think in all seriousness, I, I, I take credits really seriously, not only for what they're worth in the moment, but I think of them in terms of a legacy because they're going to be the things that are there long after mm. we're all gone. You know, we, we necessarily work in a field where we're creating things that are, if we're doing our jobs right, going to outlast us and hopefully be appreciated for eons. Yeah. That said, I think that that crediting is really important and I, and I'm proud of uh my Beyoncé credits, but I'm also proud of credits that are from a smaller band that no one's even heard of. Mm-hmm. Because I think about that being a part of my pedigree and that's who kind of made me into who I am today in this current moment. And it's an an idealistic notion and it's but it's one that I think is the if there's going to be an idealistic notion that I'm going to hold on to, it's that I treat every project that I'm working on as though it's going to be the last one because it might be. And I don't say yes to everything for that very reason. So the things that I do say yes to, the things that I want to work on, I really want to be working on. Yeah. And yes, there's, I, I, I can, I can't exactly pinpoint if more money or more prestige or more whatever Grammy nominations came in after a certain credit. I'm not really invested in that. I'm invested in how it feels that I get to keep working. You know, that's one of the, when you work in a studio or you work for a preeminent producer or mixer engineer, a lot of the times the reward that you get for saving the day or doing a great job is not necessarily, thank you, that was amazing. You did a fantastic job. Let's put a little plaque here on the front door that says your name. No, it's... (laughs) Hey, you're gonna come in tomorrow. We're gonna rock again. You want to come in, and that's got to be enough. Yeah, and you need to find that satisfaction internally. Not to get new agey on you, but I think that that's that's gotten me thus far, and I'm not gonna divert from that. Yeah. So that maybe I don't know if that's a a, a sexy or satisfying answer, but that's the one that I've come to in terms of credits. I love that answer. I love that because I, you know. I kind of always, you know, part of my downfall early in my career was I was always like chasing, trying to get the thing, right? You get like jealous of like your friends that are making a record and you're like, damn, I wish I made that record. I want that credit. I want to do that. I want to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I've, I've found personally that some of my favorite projects that 
uh, are of varying sizes are the ones that people come to you because you did and the pro and the projects that are the most you know um flashy i mean they're just they're just there to throw on your website <laughs> just for yeah. for shits could be but you're you had a beautiful answer to that question i really uh i'm, I'm really happy with with what you said there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of that even in terms of just the projects that I seek out. You know, I've been doing this for my entire adult life and I'm still seeking out stuff to work on, but it's to my taste. I tend to like weirder things and, you know, I I think that that's... If, if you can find, it, especially when you're starting out in your career, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about like gravitate towards the music that you'd want to listen to anyway. Yeah. I think that you'll be able to find an internal barometer of what feels like success early on. And that's going to carry you a long way because as we all know, there are easier ways to make more money and do less work than in this line of work. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry, we lost half of your viewership. Phone <laughs> like, oh, lines shit. are lighting up, Travis. Phone <laughs> lines are lighting up. But I think, you know, there's, there's, Yes, you have to make a living. Yes, you have to pay bills and you have to find a way to make the logistics work. But once you've gotten to that sort of standing point of, okay, I can make this work, well, there's got to be something else that's going to make you want to keep doing it. And I don't know that I ever, I think I always stumbled into the bigger credits and, and maybe that's just right place, right time, or just, you know, I, I feel like I did a good job on the bigger credits and there's still bigger credits coming, but like there's still things that I really care about and I enjoy working on. Right. And yeah, I think that that's, that's, the, that's the way that I can kind of keep that idealistic notion of like, this is the most important thing that I have ever done because it could be the last thing that I've done. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. I think it's great. And uh, some of your answer kind of, goes towards the last two closing questions here, which I'll, I'll throw at you now. Well, I have a question for you, though, really quick. Yeah. Did, did you notice a difference when you got big credits? Like, was there a... No. No. <laughs> yeah. Cool. No. I mean, I think I, I've talked about this on, on another Formal podcast. Formal everyone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the record that I think gets me the most work is a um, kind of an obscure record by this artist named Lo Fang. Mm -hmm. It's quirky. It's like 10 years old. Um, he had a big sink, but like, he's not a... It's not a huge artist. But it's very, yeah, I enjoyed it. The, everybody involved, like you can tell that everybody loved that record and the people that like that record, like it's different. It has an impact on people. Musicians like it. I think that's that's key is like making, you know, if you're making music that musicians love, then they're going to seek out the music makers. It's like if you make a big pop record. That's it, 100%. Like generally, musicians are not going to be like, I really want to work with this person that made mm -hmm. this Katy Perry record unless they yeah. want to be Katy Perry. But yeah, that's my experience is that, and by chance, they also happen to be my favorite records yeah. as well, which is a, is a funny correlation where you're like, oh, something connected here. This is the music I loved. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a dialogue too. Like you're putting, you're putting something into, your, into the music that you're making. And it's putting something in, into you as well that maybe you can't track until years down the line. Mm -hmm, definitely. And the things that come most quickly to mind in terms of like the legacy or even the like there's there's platinum plaques on my wall, for instance, but I have the album, uh, the record frames, way many more record frames of albums that I really loved working on that are maybe more niche, certainly weirder, but just as if not more fulfilling. Yeah. Because I think about the formative ways in which, oh, wow, I remember working on that record in less than ideal situations and we figured this thing out. And like to this day, I still do this this way now. You know, it's... yeah. 
when you're in a bigger pop mechanism, as you know, there's probably less room for you being super creative and you're kind of just being the consultant that's like, I need to make sure this sounds good everywhere. Bing, bang, boom. And, and, that it, and that's a good skill to have as well. Yeah. But I think of the ones that the records that have really sat with me and affected me, they're, they're certainly the weirder ones, just like you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> they're more fun. By the way, I, I was listening to your title playlist, uh, your, your stuff, your mix of sound killer. And there's like a oh, very eclectic, but you, know, you can feel a, a thread while I was clicking around. I was like, really? Is... What is that thread? Everyone asks me, and I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. I, I hear like vocals and drums. <laughs> <laughs> vocals and drums. I, I like color and vibe, mm. and like uh, from a music standpoint, like something that I would I would say more musical. Like the I can tell that there's more players that are really good. There's not a lot of like loops and fake programming, and maybe there is, but it's just like the way mm -hmm. everything gels together like it feels like real music through gear through you know live experience in a room that that's what i took mm. away clicking fair enough. Um, i mean you'd, you'd know better than me at this point i don't <laughs> even know i i do i do like when people pick up that it's a very vast genre and different types of people and different types of artists i, I never wanted to be the like the rock guy or the rap guy or the whatever guy right i really try hard to keep it a very broad range of things yeah, that's cool. It sounds great. All right, so I know you got to go, so we'll just hit these last couple questions. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of touched on this, but I'm going to ask it anyway because those are the rules. Uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? And I guess the implication is that I have to name that. I can't just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could say yes, but, and we could move on. But that... um, Yeah, I think, I think when I... Uh, realized that I didn't want to be an artist after I made a record and slaved away on it and did the whole touring rigmarole. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I don't think this is for me, but I want to make music. And then some bands like, hey, can you help us produce our album? We liked your record. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but I don't have a job. So let's do let's it. go. <laughs> I, got a drum, I got a drum set and an ARP 2600 in a loft in Bushwick. Let's figure it out. So I think that that was, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason I've been uh, maybe gifted with the disposition of being able to kind of bob and weave yeah. and roll with it. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the proverbial jump off a cliff and build wings on the way down. I'm, I'm that person, but I also bring my toolbox with me. I'm not going to just willy-nilly jump off a cliff, but like <laughs> I'll, I'll jump off in a prepared manner. But I think that was probably the seminal moment where I was like, wow, I made this whole thing. And I realized, you know, it's it's the thing of like, be careful uh, what you ask for because you just might get it. And yeah, I got it. Yeah. I was like, wow, I made a record. This sucked. I don't want to be an artist. I don't want to be on tour. I think that that's probably, yeah, the, the genesis of me realizing that you can course correct um, yeah. without completely losing course. You know, I think that there's... Sometimes I get asked in interviews, like, what would you ask an earlier version of yourself? If you could give your earlier version of yourself advice, what would it be? Yeah. And I always, I would say for nothing. Because <laughs> first of all, if I know me at, at all, I would never listen to me. And you're like, who the hell is this guy? I don't know that you're me. You've not aged well. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe if you told me to get more sleep, I'd listen to you. But I also think of that that 20-year-old kid is, he... he 
he's knows just fine. He made me. Mm. And I think think I know too much about uh physics and telemetry that you know if you're if you're flying from from LA to New York and the nose of the plane is just off by 3 degrees, you're going to end up in Washington DC. Right. So I wouldn't change anything. And I think that whatever the path is that led me here, I'm cool. That's great. I love that. That's cool. Uh, all right. So our, our last question to close it out here is what right now is your current biggest goal that you're able to share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? Damn. Ending on bangers too. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think that one thing that's really important to me is the way that technology has grown in recent decades and even the last few years. Um, it's really decentralized the way that music can be made. I think that's a great thing. Mm. I think that a lot of artists, especially during the pandemic, were able to make records and make pretty convincingly good sounding things at home because of things like portable sound cards and SM7s and what have you. Yeah, I think that sometimes when artists get to work with their first engineer, myself included, it can go a little pear-shaped and be not a great situation or experience for them because of gatekeeping or mansplaining, or not really having a sense of empowering an artist that might not know the doodads and what's inside the widgets and how all the electrons work, but that has an idea, and then they start coming up against all these rules. And it's like, well, we can't do that because the snare is going to distort. Okay, is that bad? I don't... Okay, let's distort it then. So a lot of the way that I try to be in the world with artists that I'm working with on this YouTube thing or with assistants that I'm training is to show them that like there's always mutual points of contact and that this person may not know certain technical things that you do, but you have an opportunity to inform them and empower them. And they also probably know well, a whole ton of shit you don't know. And so I'd, I'd really, a goal of mine is to sort of make an impact on there's ways to be excellent engineers and excellent creative professionals and also empower people with technology, with teaching them how to do things, but also just enabling their ideas in a way that isn't restrictive. Yeah. And to that end, you know, I think that the small step towards that is starting the YouTube thing, but also just even in a, in a more overt way, like reaching out to artists that I know that I'm not even working with and just saying like, hey, send me this thing and I'll show you how to do this. Or like, Here's a bunch of pre like I've been doing this on Instagram recently because I sort of dragged that nobody changes the default preset of Valhalla reverb, Valhalla what? vintage verb. What's wrong with the default preset of Valhalla? The default vintage preset verb? sounds really good. <laughs> Full display, it sounds really good, but that plugin is so deep and so nuanced and it's a really, really good, but you have to change some knobs. And so I, I like made fun. And then like so many producers were just like, ooh, I feel I feel attacked. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make presets for you. And then I did another thing where I'm going to make presets for Sound Toys Effect Rack and, and uh, Valhalla Delay. So I think things like that too. Just like, hey, these are, I'm not just making these presets for you. These are, I'm opening up sessions that I'm working on and I'm saving them. And these are things that I use. I think that yeah. to me, I think that technology doesn't have to be something that is like a barrier to access. I think that it can be a touchstone of access. And I think that, the ways that we go about it and the way that we go about sharing knowledge and gifts with people can be more generative than sometimes it's made out to be. Yeah. Yeah. 
I agree. Something I've I've noticed, you know, between talking before we did this podcast and then and during is is you seem to be, I don't know if you've always been like this or if this is something you've come to in the last few years, definitely like really looking to give back with the YouTube channel. I know you said you did some master classes. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're very mentorish with your assistants. Like have you always been like that or or did you recently decide like I really want to like give my all to everybody because it just makes everybody better? I'd like to think I've always been that way because that's how I got to be where I am. Yeah. Uh, somebody definitely, if they had looked at my resume, would have not let me through the door, but they had a conversation with me. I'm like, well, he's not the smartest guy in the world, but he's not the dumbest. So let him <laughs> in. Let's see what happens. Yeah. See if yeah. he knocks over a mic stand on the first day. And I think that I, I just really, I enjoy teaching, but I think that it's important. Again, I, I've had so many experiences that were not so great mm-hmm. with engineers and early on in my career and it's like why are you being so gatekeepery about this you know and i think yeah. that there's also it's something that i've that i've maybe haven't upped my efforts recently but i'm trying new ways around it but it's always been a thing that i've even when i hire assistants i i always hire the person and not the skill set yeah love that i can teach you the stuff it's all gear it's good. some of it's warm some of it doesn't warm up very much yeah some of it you need to turn off at night it's got tubes in it Valhalla vintage verb you just open it up and use it Valhalla vintage verb, fader, up is louder, down is quieter. We're there. But uh, <laughs> I, I think a teachable mind and just someone that, you know, like solution-oriented person with a teachable mind and just be nice, like that's that's more than a resume to me. So I think I've always been that way because I think, again, I, I, I it's, it's similar to the kind of <laughs> new agey stance that I have about like we're making things that are going to outlast us. Yeah. You're going to spend a lot of time in the room with this human being that's your assistant you better like that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I think that people respond to, I, I think that there's no more, I think a lot of times people who come up in less than ideal situations like, or like they had to eat shit in turning and, and scrubbing toilets, so to speak, or whatever. They're like, well, that's just how it's done. Now I, I did it, you have to do it. Or another idea is you did it and you realize that it sucked. So don't do so it. So maybe you can just pay forward something, a little bit of grace. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I say this all the time. Like, if I'm going to get the lunch order at a session, that means things are running so swimmingly that I'm just going to go take an air break and lunch is on me. Y'all got it. It's great. (laughs) But if I'm popping channels on the console and we're trying to figure out where that hum is coming from, someone else has got to get the lunch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I will will let you get back to work. This has been an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed uh, every second of this. Thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate your thoughtful questions. Yeah, well, please tell people, anybody that wants to find you, tell them whatever you want to tell them about yourself or where they can get in touch or whatever. Well, I think most of the ways people get in touch is just on Instagram or Twitter, and both of those handles are tabnetic, T-A-B-N-E-T-I-C. Cool. Well, I hope you have a great day. Get back to work. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure, man. You too. Thanks a lot, Travis. That's it for episode 66. Thanks to Chris Tabron for coming on the show. Please check out his YouTube channel and all of the amazing records he's been making. Also, thanks to all of you for listening. If you have not left a review for the show, please consider doing so. It's one of the most supportive things you can do for a podcast. It helps potential guests know that this is a show that people find valuable and makes them more likely to want to jump on. Uh, Also, I need to start thanking my editor, Stephen Boyd. If you have heard any episode released since 2022 started, you have heard his work. So thank you, Stephen. You're crushing it. And finally, as always, if you have not joined the Complete Producer Network, definitely do that. Go over to completeproducer.net and sign up there. It's free. It's fun. And do it.
So on that note, I will see you all again in two weeks.